This is 30 minutes before church starts. <laughs> yeah, they're here because they heard Jimmy's preaching, so they showed up early. Prior to our trip in May, uh, the most recent trip someone here from Highland had made to Papua New Guinea was Larry McKenzie back in 2014. In 2014, I told the people in Papua New Guinea that would be my last trip. But I began to pray for someone to become interested in the work. And shortly after he returned that year, he pulled me aside and said, Jimmy, I'm going to start praying up some other Highland members to go on future trips and kind of winked at me. We kept talking about it, then he decided to go. Then I thought, well, he might need someone to go and show him the way. Now, I know he'd traveled internationally, but you haven't traveled until you go to Papua New Guinea. So I went with he and Eric. We're in Port Morrisby at the airport. Here's Larry, Jimmy. We've been traveling for how long now? 36 hours. 36, 36 hours so far. And when we got there, Jeb obviously met us. Then we began the 25-mile trip into Lay. Here we are. We got Arthur over here, just graduated from Sydney, Singapore. Then we got William over here, just graduated. We got Jimmy back there. Here we are in the back of the truck. Larry's riding the shotgun. He put me in the front seat because I guess I looked so old I needed to be up there. When Joe Kellen and others went into Papua New Guinea, they had a 25-year plan, and they decided that what they wanted to do was to teach the nationals to teach the nationals, and that they were working themselves really out of a job. This is what literally has happened through the years. After all of the initial work was done in Papua New Guinea, the missionaries began to leave, and then the nationals began to take over. Jeb Mesa is the director of the school. He's a national. His wife is the bookkeeper, a national. All of the teachers are graduates of Melanesian Bible College. Jab and Becky are the heartbeat of Melanesian Bible College. I've personally witnessed their faithfulness with the funds that we as a church provide. Um, they are held in high esteem there and high regard there in that country. Uh, you notice what she does, instead of fanning, she takes that towel and <laughs> a good lady. Yeah, I may sit next to you. We were fortunate when we got there, the school was just about to let out and the timing was perfect. We actually got to participate in, I believe, the 27th graduation ceremony. I actually had the privilege of handing out diplomas. And so, the, you know, the student body it was representative of various regions of the country and uh, these were students that had been taught the gospel and were now returning to their own villages to share the good news with their family and friends there. I have a vision to, to return home to my village. The idea is to go back, uh, re-enter workforce, and then while I am working and serving the community at large, I am also uh, supporting uh, the work of the local congregation that I will be serving. I have families and relatives um, who are religious in a way, but who needed the gospel. Their goal 
is to uh, grow churches in all of the villages and to make disciples throughout the whole island. And I know that Joe and others would be so proud of what has been accomplished through all of the years since 1971 in Papua New Guinea. If you're a guest here, let me, let me tell you a little bit about this. This is Papua New Guinea, where we support the Melanesian Bible College, and we support them and 30 other ministries through a biannual outreach contribution that we're going to take up next week. And so this is my favorite thing I say all year, and I say it twice a year. Next week, we're going to raise $240,000 and then give it away to the best ministries in Memphis, in this country, and around the world. And so if you're a guest, I want to invite you back next week. Don't come thinking you need to give. Just come and watch the generosity of this church as we, we pour out our gifts for the sake of those around the world, like those in Melanesian Bible College. I'm going to tell you some about that today and some about that trip. I can't tell you everything that happened there because some of what happens in PNG stays in PNG. But uh, I'm going to tell you some of it. So 1970, Joe Cannon legendary missionary supported by this church for many, many years. He's sitting on a cliff top in Okinawa and he's reading through a National Geographic magazine. So the reason that Joe is in Okinawa is because Joe had a fire in his belly for reaching lost people. If you knew Joe, you know that to be true. Joe suffered from this condition of actually believing what the Bible said. So when Peter writes, uh, you know, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Joe Cannon actually believed that and was willing to go and suffer, that that was a grace to go and suffer for God. So he went where nobody else wanted to go. And that's why he went to Japan right after World War II when they were hated by many Americans and then to Okinawa. And that's how he found himself on this clifftop in 1970, looking at the National Geographic magazine from May of 1962, which featured Papua New Guinea. And he sees these images of tribesmen and women deep in the jungles and mountains of Papua New Guinea, men and women who have never heard the name Jesus. And Joe just can't get their pictures and their faces out of his mind. And so he and Rosabelle, his wife, a few months later, write this in their newsletter. They said, after much thought and prayer, we've decided to move to New Guinea to work among the mountain tribes there. For some time, we have desired to pioneer a work in a region where no one has preached Christ. And New Guinea is one of those last places in the world. Joe was also a bit of a poet, and he wrote later that same day a little poem, and it ends like this. There in the middle of the screen, you see this. He's, he's speaking about those New Guineans who haven't heard Jesus. And he says, so hold on, O child in bondage, 
for the world is drawing nigh. You shall hear the gospel story and no longer shall you die. Joe had this fire in his belly, this fire that was just constantly burning, just driving him to reach new people for the sake of Christ, despite what the consequences might be. This fire is just raging inside of him. And so when I landed in Papua New Guinea, almost 50 years later, went there with Jimmy, one of our elders, and Larry, another one of our ministers. As I landed there, the question on my mind was, what does that fire look like 50 years later? Because Joe's gone. And Jesus has this really haunting line in Matthew 24 when he says, he looks into the future with his followers and he says, the love of most will grow cold. You know, the love inside, this passion they have that's, that's driving them to reach other people that, well, it's like an untended fire. It's just going to die down, eventually turn to ash, that they'll be persecuted, misled, that they'll suffer, and then the fire will go out just like that. So how do you stoke the fire? So on the first Sunday we're there, we're standing outside the open air church building on the campus of the Melanesian Bible College. And on that, that open air church building is a sign that says Highland Church of Christ. So it, it, it felt like coming home, except they were at church on time. And um, I know Breeson liked that one. It's a 30 minutes beforehand, they're singing as we get there. Okay, so they're at church on time. And we're standing there outside this, this little open air church building, Highland Church of Christ. And this older fellow walks up and he's, he's got a green baseball cap and his skin is, is wrinkled. He's, he's, he looks like he's had a hard life. He walks up and he shakes our hand and Jab Mesa, the missionary we support there, he and his wife, Becky, Jab says, ah, this, this is Simon. Like I should know who that is. And I, and I looked at him a bit perplexed and he says, you should know who Simon is. You've told his story at Highland. Highland's heard his story a hundred times. And I still look perplexed. And he said, this is the Simon who saved Joe Cannon's life. He said, you remember the story. Joe converted Simon. He was one of his first converts in the little church that Joe started. And so Simon took Joe back to his home village to preach the gospel. And Joe follows Simon back to the village. They get into the village center and he begins to preach the gospel like Paul or Peter in the, in the city center. And as he's preaching, one of those village elders comes up and tells him, you'll stop this. And if you don't stop this, if you come back tomorrow and continue to preach, he held out an ax and he said, I'll kill you. He actually said, I'll give you this ax, but not as a present. So the next day, Joe, who used to say that he got his orders from headquarters, and for the record, Highland's elders were never the headquarters for Joe. Like his orders came straight from God. The next day, Joe shows back up at that village and, be, and continues to preach the gospel. And that village leader lets out this war cry from the top of the hill with that ax and begins running at Joe to kill him. And at the last minute, Simon, that man right there, jumps in front of Joe Cannon and says, kill me first, kill me first. Joe is my brother. Joe is my brother. And so here I am shaking the hand of the man that saved Joe Cannon's life. Amazing. As he walked off, Jab said, you know, there's a part of that story that y'all don't tell. And I said, really? He said, yeah. Not long after Joe left, Simon actually drifted away. We lost track of him. Ultimately, he became homeless and lived on the streets. 
So how do you keep that love from growing cold? How do you continue to stoke the fire? You know, this has really always been the question the church has been asking. You know, from the earliest centuries, when we had those, those apostles with those great gifts, right? And we had those women who were supporting Jesus' ministry out of their own pockets and going wherever Jesus went. The question has always been, after them, what next? Like, how do we, how do we keep that fire burning? You, the early church looks out and they've got these prophets and evangelists and teachers and these amazing spiritual gifts. And the question is really like, how do we keep that going? And Paul answers this in Ephesians 4, and he says the answer is really simple. After all that, the church. Okay, after that, the church. This is what he says in Ephesians 4. He says, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers, to equip his people for works of service so that what? The body of Christ, the church, may be built up. That's the goal until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. You can just imagine that fire just burning fully, brightly. He goes on. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waters, blown here and there by the, every wind of teaching and every cunning and, cra- and all the cra- cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, Christ. Okay, so this is something that Joe understood, and he goes on. Joe, Joe got this. Joe Cannon knew he would not be in Papua New Guinea forever. And so that question was there for him as well. Okay, how do we keep this fire burning? And Joe knew that the place believers are matured. Okay, the place where that fire inside of them is stoked and burns hot, that place is the church. Okay, the place where believers learn to speak the truth and love bravely and with compassion, that place is the church. So Joe started a church in Papua New Guinea. I met another three of Joe's first converts in that church that he started there in Papua New Guinea. They're all older fellows now. And one of them, when I met him, he, he bowed low to us to shake our hands. And when he bowed low, he had this old t-shirt on with a real stretched collar. And I noticed these scars all over his neck and the top of his back. And as he reached out his hand and as he talked, you could see these scars down his arms. And he had come a a great distance that day. We had traveled out to this village deep in the bush and he had come a great distance because he heard we were coming from the Highland Church of Christ in Memphis, Tennessee. And he thought this may be his only chance to come and tell Highland Church of Christ, thank you. Because he told us he owed us his life, he said. So I'm listening to to his story. He had been baptized by Joe many, many years earlier, had returned to this very village to preach the gospel. And at some point in the story, I I got up the nerve to ask about the scars. And Jab Mesa, who was translating for us, kind of took a deep breath. And then the man began to tell me the stories about those scars. And he said after Joe Cannon had baptized him and his sister, and I've told this story to the youth group, they've heard this. After he baptized him and his sister, the two of them went to this very village that we were sitting in right now. And they came back to preach. 
And they began to preach the gospel in this little village to the people they had grown up with. And they converted this young boy, 14-year-old boy. And the three of them were walking through the village one day. And they were talking, the two of them, to this boy, talking to him about life in Christ when they were surrounded by village leaders with machetes. And those village leaders fell onto them with the machetes and they struck his sister first and she fell quickly dying. And in despair, not knowing what else to do, he wrapped his arms around that boy that they had just baptized and the machete blows began to fall on his back and neck, cutting him deeply. And he said, just before I passed out and fell down to the ground, I whispered into that boy's ears, the only thing I could think, run, run. He said, the last thing I saw was him disappearing into the bush as I fell down in the dirt in my blood. I said, so what happened next? I, his answer caught me off guard because he pointed over his shoulder to this little church building set up on the hillside. The trees had been cleared away from the church building, jungle in the background, this little, this little one room church building. And he looked at me with this great pride and he said, that happened next. And we began to walk up the hill to this church building. We realized we were walking on petals. The women had taken flowers from the jungle and spread them along the path and petals. And they started singing, the women did, as we're walking towards this church. And they put these lays around our neck as we entered the church building. And we, we go up to the front of the church and we begin to worship with them. And as we're worshiping, these men, one by one, begin to make their way into the church building. And it's really apparent that they've all come from really far. They all look really tired and worn out and dirty. And one by one, as they come into the room, the crowd rises and they embrace them and wrap their arms around them. And there's, there's tears and Jab Mesa, he's just beaming with pride. And he looks over at us, Jimmy and I, as each of them come into the church and he begins to tell us their names. And we learn as each of them come in that they were men who grew up in this church as boys. They were brought to matureness in this church and that this church sent them to the Melanesian Bible College to be trained as preachers. And that they returned to this village and then went to surrounding villages, sometimes crossing dangerous rivers, climbing tall mountains, and started new churches in villages in other valleys surrounding this one. Probably five to six men came in who had planted churches around this church in villages far away. And they had traveled these 20 miles, 10 miles that day to come and tell Highland, thank you. I want to be like, no, 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 like, thank you, right? You, you, you're planting churches in danger of your life, okay? Because the fire's burning inside. And Joe knew that fire had to be tended. He knew that. He had it burning inside him, but he knew he wasn't going to be around forever. So he started a church. That church started churches. Those churches started a school to train preachers to go and start more churches. <laughs> and today in Papua New Guinea, hundreds of churches have been started. Thousands have been baptized, okay, because the fire's burning there. Jab and his wife, Becky, direct the school. There are five other teachers at the school. All of those teachers preach in local congregations. They travel deep into the bush to visit these churches that students have started. They hold gospel meetings on islands off the coast of Papua New Guinea, on mountains deep in the heart of Papua New Guinea. Hundreds of preachers have been trained. Hundreds of churches started, thousands baptized, like I said. And it's, well, it's because of your support. 
It's by the power of God, but like, make no mistake, Highland Church of Christ in Memphis, Tennessee pays all the bills. We pay for those preachers. We pray for their food at school. We pray, pay for their facilities. We pay for Jab and Becky Mesa. Like this is this moment to, to stop and like thank God for his gracious provision for this church. That by that gracious provision and your generosity, we have paid for hundreds of churches to be started and thousands to be reached for the name of Christ in Papua New Guinea. Praise God, right? Praise God. They're doing all that, right? Even though Joe is gone, they're tending the fire. In fact, I, I met this one young preacher, single young man, one of the few singles that's being trained there. Most are families with small children. And he's from an area of Papua New Guinea that's caught in the middle of a civil war. And there's kind of a long backstory to that, but the short version is Papua New Guinea is still a really dangerous place, especially in some areas. So his home village is in the midst of a civil war and he had just graduated. We were there, as you saw in the video for graduation, and he was planning to travel home. And he was gonna go home with a couple other people, but those people backed out because it was just so bad. And I overheard the conversation and they just, they just said, you know, we can't go right now. We're gonna stay at the Melanesian Bible College. We're not going back. But early one morning I get up and he's, he's loading his one bag into Jab's uh, Jeep to travel to the bus stop and take the bus back to his village, right where the civil war is going on. And I went out there and I said, Nicholas, I said, I heard the conversation yesterday. I heard how bad it is where you're going. Like it's so violent. Uh, you were there, you heard that. Are you sure you wanna go back there? I mean, aren't you scared? And he looked at me with confusion. And he said, why would I be scared? God is there. I was like, man, we got another Joe Cannon on our hands. The fire's burning. It's because that fire's still burning in Papua New Guinea that a couple years ago, Becky was in the marketplace, Becky Mesa, Jab's wife. She was in the market and she came across this older fella. He was, he was worn out guy. He had, he'd had a hard life. He was sick. She knew he needed help, so she invited him to the Melanesian Bible College and to the little church that meets there so that they could support him, look after his needs. And she gave him a job just cleaning up around the school. And a couple days later, he came to her and he was finally kind of opening it up. And he said, uh, Becky, my name is Simon. And many years ago, I knew a man named Joe Cannon. In fact, I saved his life once. Isn't that amazing? So if you ever wonder if your gift to the outreach contribution does anything at all, okay? Think of all those hundreds of preachers who've been trained in the Melanesian Bible College of Papua New Guinea. Think of those hundreds of churches started, those thousands who have been baptized. But if all that's not enough, think of that old fellow with the green baseball cap, Simon. And remember that he now has a place to come, to get warmed by the fire, because someone was still tending it. And the reason they are still tending it is because of your gracious gift and the provision of our Lord and Savior. So if you wonder, is it worth it? Think of Simon and throw another log on the fire. Next week, when we take up the outreach contribution, be prayerfully planning how you can be part of that. We're gonna raise $240,000 in one day. That's over six times our normal contribution. 
and then we're going to give it away. I invite you to come there and come back and be here with us as we do that. Let's stand and sing together. Start a fire in me. Let the flame.